0: Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, your creator and host. For this week's episode, I speak with Sonya Childress, a senior fellow at the Perspective Fund. Her recent articles on Medium entitled A Reckoning, and the article she co-wrote with Natalie Bullock-Brown of Working Films entitled... The documentary, Future, A Call for Accountability, has centered many of the hopes and frustrations of BIPOC filmmakers and industry folks who are forced to navigate a community that overtly and covertly centers whiteness from the filmmakers to the funders to the audience. During our conversation, we talked about her impact producing origins, her work with Firelight Media, and the importance of centering the agency of BIPOCs in the work that we create and support. Because in all of her work, she centers people of color and Blackness in particular, this week's song is a new Rotary Connections classic, I am the Black Gold of the Sun. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in May 2020. We actually met, well, I feel like I knew of you for a long time, like when I first got into the documentary world about 10 years ago, but I um, had never met you until um, the Firelight Impact Producers retreat in New Orleans when y'all invited me to participate in that. And it was the inaugural group of the um, Impact
1: Producers. Um, So,
0: yeah, so can you talk about that a little
1: bit? Sure, so I had been, you know, I I had been working with um, Firelight Media for at that point, maybe 12 years. And um, I, you know, I had been working as a as an impact producer, working in the impact space um, for about sixteen years at that point. And, you know, I think a few things were happening for, for me personally. You know, I I felt like I was often in the impact circles. I was one of the only folks of color doing this work. I had been doing it for a long time. Um, But, you know, in the 15 years or so that I had started, you know, the the landscape started to broaden and shift. You know, more people were coming into the work, more people were seeing impact producing as as a profession, as a practice that they could possibly get paid to do, to do as freelancers. There were more jobs opening up um, uh, where folks could work in production companies or work in new impact boutique organizations. And so it was a super exciting time. Um, I was happy to see more colleagues and more folks interested in the work and doing this little slice of heaven work, you know, that that's, that's in, in the intersection of organizing and, and creative expression and communications. And, and so I was happy about the changes that were happening in the field. I was also feeling like there was a real... Um, uh, lack of uh, representation uh, from communities who were often the subjects of the documentaries we were working with. And there was also, I was finding as more people were coming into the field, they were coming from different, um, different areas. They were coming from festivals, they were coming from distribution, all skills, skill sets that were hugely useful, but I wasn't seeing a lot of folks coming in from organizing spaces, and I wasn't seeing a lot of folks of color coming into the space. And whenever I had a chance, you know, as an impact producer, running an impact campaign for maybe Stanley, Stanley Nelson's films, I always, when I could, when I had resources to bring someone to support me, I would hire an organizer. I would hire someone who knew the issues really well of the film, um, who had deep relationships in that particular movement, and who had deep connections and understanding and um, of the language and the terminology the flow, the politics of that particular movement. I didn't need someone who knew film. I needed someone who knew the issue and the landscape. So I would hire organizers when I could. And I always felt like, you know, the impact space needs more people with these skill sets who know how to organize using culture. Um, we don't need necessarily more people who know how to how the film festival how to manage a film festival circuit, so um, so I think that was kind of the impetus uh, uh, around me thinking about developing some kind of um, initiative to bring more folks of color and more organizers into the impact space. So I pitched that idea to my colleagues at Firelight, and they were and they were into it. And so we launched the Impact Producer Fellowship, and it was a year long fellowship for folks of color. And um, we kind of thought about three different kinds of folks, folks who were traditional producers, who were hoping to deepen their um, toolkit so that they could also do impact campaigns in in addition to traditional producing. Um, We hired folks who were creative strategists, who maybe worked in nonprofits, um, who did or who worked across movements, but who, who, who sort of worked across artistic mediums but understood the power of culture and understood organizing but had been maybe freelancers and then uh, and then we looked at people who were full-time staff in movement organizations and part of what i was trying to do was test out whether or not this work needed to be embedded in movement organizations as opposed to sit within a freelancer um, and and also that you know if we raise the capacity of social justice organizations who often get approached Um, to be partners on impact campaigns. If we had someone in-house there who understood how to work with nonfiction that wasn't created for them but could benefit them, um, then that would help everybody's work. Um, And so we would identify a few people who were working as comms people, communications folks, um, or organizers within uh, traditional social justice organizations. And so we had like three buckets of people that we pulled from and we had an inaugural class of eight fellows Of our first year, um, and and you were there for one of our retreats. Yeah, and it was a great group and a great learning experience. Um, And you know, I think you know that fellowship model is always great for people who feel like they're alone or one of's um, to have community to build community. But I think around this particular practice, because it's so interdisciplinary, I think it was helpful to have uh, a community of folks who could learn from one another. Learn about this, this particular practice, and challenge and challenge the practice. You know, challenge our thinking about uh, about how far we push advocacy. Challenge um, the the gaze that we're speaking to in these campaigns.
0: Yes, all of
1: that. I think having some outsiders who are really embedded in movements forced a lot of really good and hard questions of me. And I think hopefully, as they enter the field, they'll force a lot of good questions in the field. So
0: just to to backtrack a little bit, and this is more for folks who are just new to what impact is. um, And this is something that I come come up against, um, we'll see a lot in in my work. Um, When people are essentially tasked with uh, trying to create or create an impact campaign, sometimes people will literally say, I hope my film makes an impact. As an impact campaign, so can you um, articulate the difference between like impact and audience engagement for those folks who are new to the concept or think they know but really don't know?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the way folks typically define the or differentiate those two goals is um, every film needs an audience, every film deserves an audience, um, and there and and every uh, film as it releases requires some kind of strategy to identify the right audience or to even just reach the audience that the filmmaker wants to reach. And that you know, that process of identifying an audience for your film and then an ident- identifying a strategy to reach the audience for your film is what we would consider to be audience engagement. And every film needs an audience engagement strategy. And and engage and that's different from even that is different from marketing because marketing is kind of transactional, um, and engagement you know implies uh, some reciprocity that you want people to grapple with the the ideas the emotion the story in your film you want a relationship with your audience you want to engage them so it takes work it takes a more work possibly than marketing and comms but it's a it's a a pro, it's, a, it's an enhancement of marketing and comps for your film, and every film needs it. Impact is when you, you have made a film, and either you or the people who are advising you who know the issue that your film is about have advised you that this film can, can, can do something. It can move the needle on a particular issue. It can shift a conversation. It can possibly shift resources. It could shift policy. It could shift behavior and that there could be some specific ways that this can impact, um, that this film can create an impact. Identifying that impact, what you want people to do once the lights come up is an impact campaign. So it's, it includes audience engagement, how you reach those people. It goes a step further and says, now we've reached you. This is what we'd like you to do, or this is where we'd like to, you know, um, this is how we'd like to mobilize you or uh, guide that emotional experience that you're having, or that intellectual opening that you now have because you saw that film. So it's some, you know, Ani Mercedes says it really eloquently when she says audience engagement is reaching audience and impact is is the right audience. Um, it's, it's the right audience, but it's also the and to do what. To what end are you reaching them? And to what end are you moving them along a spectrum of action or thinking? So that's what an impact campaign is. And not every film needs an impact campaign. Not every filmmaker wants to enact a particular kind of change with their film. But every filmmaker needs an audience engagement strategy. So that's how I differentiate them. Great. Thank you.
0: So you said you've been working in the impact space for... A long, a long time, and I imagine easy, you were
1: easy. I'm really young. so
0: uh, I know me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine you were working in the impact space before. it was actually called impact. you know mm-hmm. because I, I feel like the the word impact producing has become like really popular in the past maybe like th- right, three to four years. Um, so what was it called before? Did it have a name? At all. Yeah.
1: Well, I got together with, like Moses and like some of the apostles and in those early years. I'm just kidding, <laughs> it's not that old. Uh, I got my start. I was working at a nonprofit, a youth serving nonprofit in, in San Francisco right out of college, my first year out of college and was organizing um with young folks. And and I got approached by somebody who worked with Ellen Schneider um at an at a project called the Television Race Initiative in in San Francisco and Ellen had just left her executive producer role at POV. Um, And she you know moved out west and was experimenting with um the ways in which uh you could curate a series of documentaries and engage audiences around specific issues using docs. And sustain a conversation using a curated series of, of docs. So we were pulling. She was pulling docs mainly that were coming on, out of POV's um, season, and looking specifically at films that were addressing issues of domestic race relations, and using them to spur conversation. At the time, um, and so she hired me, um, and and I think you know that was about twenty years ago um and she hired me as a trainer and at that point the, the the terminology was outreach
0: okay okay
1: and and there were at that point i think outside of television race initiative uh, the only other organization that was doing this was working films which started 20 years ago this year um and i think another uh, entity called outreach extensions and all three entities were working um Especially Outreach Extensions and, and Television Race Initiative, which eventually turned into Active Voice, were working with films in the PBS system, mostly films that had uh, PBS broadcasts.
0: Right. So, were these films that had already been made and then you were doing essentially the impact campaign after the fact, or were you involved in the process um, as the film was being created or even its latest like post production?
1: I would say that in those early years, Ellen, because, you know, because Television Race Initiative and Active Voice was a was a was a a sister entity to POV. We were pulling mainly from the POV seasons. So we were we were focusing on films that we knew would get a national broadcast, a national audience and taking advantage of the fact that that built in audience. And the broadcast was really an, an opportunity, a catalytic opportunity to raise or shift a national conversation or do some national level of organizing. So almost all of the films had a national broadcast and we would usually come on once the slate was identified. Um, with some exceptions, sometimes there were projects that we knew you know, um, were coming down the pike but didn't have a broadcast yet. But oftentimes we were building up towards a broadcast and were working with films that, that already had that were already slated.
0: And were you working directly with the the filmmakers um, in in the creation of these campaigns at the time or how how did that relationship
1: work? Yeah, that's a good question. It depended. I think some films certainly there was a strong relationship with the filmmakers in all of uh, in all of those campaigns and a relationship with POV um, or other uh, or other broadcasters um, if it was a non-POV uh, doc. Um, but I would say, you know, that back then, I think, you know, I think we were all kind of expanding ideas, you know, and and Ellen was really, a, 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 you know, is really a pioneer in this work. I mean, she was really a visionary around how she thought these, you know, the extent to which she, she thought these films and the national PBS broadcast could be this catalytic moment. Um, and I think she just, you know, understood that from her years of programming films like tongues untied and knowing that these films were not just being consumed they were speaking to movements they were being bootlegged they were being shared and discussed and they were being used and no one was harnessing that no one was organizing that Um, that was just naturally occurring and what could happen if you supported that Um, if you anticipated it, if you built something around that, if you built that. Um, So this was really kind of came out of that sensibility, but it was still really early and new. And so I think even in envisioning what a campaign could look like, what a year-long campaign could look like, I think some of the filmmakers still were trying to get their heads around what was possible. And um, and certainly, so there was a lot of education, I think that was happening with filmmakers around what was possible. And there was a lot of education with um, partner organizations um, funders, um, advocacy organizations, policymakers around what you could possibly do with a documentary. This was like really new concepts for a lot of folks. So a lot of what we were doing was educating them based on very few examples um, and case studies that were available at the time. It was kind of really building building the plane while flying.
0: So what were some of those case studies that you referenced? I mean, you said a few, if, if you could recall.
1: I remember even when I got hired, I was, you know, had a, a, a sort of an innate sense. I had been using documentary in the uh, kind of um, educational work that I was doing with folks, and I sort of understood the power of documentary. But I think when when I was being interviewed and in those early days of starting the org, you know, my work, you know, Ellen was referencing Tongsauntai. She was referencing Silver Lake Life, and these were not campaigns, but these were these were Uh, you know, community or you know created efforts around these films and I think even understanding hearing that kind of history from her helped to orient me to what was possible that what I was doing in my little nonprofit, my little world was happening with other films in whole regions in whole areas as films had national broadcasts and that so those kinds of examples of just the kind of organizing and you know how animated uh, audiences were around specific documentary broadcasts was my early education. Around what was possible—that's that's great.
0: No, yeah, that's great. You mentioned um, tongues untied because I think was it last year was the twenty-fifth anniversary or thirtieth. I don't know. It's all starting to run together once you get up there. But uh, Outfest did a, a special screening of it last year at their festival, and um, it actually it was the first time I had really seen it since college. And I graduated from college in ninety-three, and I, I saw it in eighty-nine when it came out, and it was so. It was timely, but also incredibly timeless, and um, and I think for me, like looking back, like the first experimental documentary I saw, because it's definitely not a, a traditional um, documentary in the in the sense of form. But I did not know that there was like a, this national um, campaign, all this these, this organizing around the film at the time. So this is this is a great bit of bit of history.
1: Well, you know the, sto- the the story around around Tong is never really around the, the the kind of the way that it was used to talk about the issues in the film. The story around Tong and Tide was the way it was politicized as a as a wedge to to try to pull funding from public television and and you know it was highly controversial, obviously, and as a touchstone in, in when you think about uh, the fight for public funding uh, for public television. Um, but but yet and still it it spoke to you know marlon knew who he was talking to in his films um and he he had an intimate relationship with his audience with his own community and those films were so intimate and um he was talking to such a specific person and yet we all had access to it with this national broadcast so there was this just this invitation into a community that he offered that is a great, you know, organizing tool. It's a great, I mean, he just, his work is such a gift. Yes. Yeah. I I was, I was at Berkeley when he was teaching, but I was an undergrad when he was in the grad school. So I was taking classes, doc, documentary classes with um, Lonnie Ding, may she rest in peace and with B. Ruby Rich. And, and they introduced me to Marlon's work while he was on campus. So it was like, you know, Like a god, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I've been, you know. I think, I think, if you draw a, you know, a, you know, a Venn diagram of of doc filmmakers, and uh, Marlon's name is 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 part of so many people's trajectories into this work and mm. their origin story. I I mean I think I if I hadn't seen his work I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. His work seeing it as an undergrad changed everything to me for me about what I thought film could do. Um I didn't want to make film. I wanted to make sure other people felt what I felt when he's when I saw his films. Wow. Um like feel, feel seen, feel, you know, um, engaged, feel connected, um, feel loved by a filmmaker, even if he wasn't talking to me. And so, uh, his, his work is just such a gift that keeps giving. And I think it just inspired so many people to come into this work in any way they find themselves in this work.
0: This is when we were still traveling. I think the next big trip I went on was the IFP week, and um i actually was doing filmmaker meetings and with a lot of young um, black filmmakers who were kind of like doing this experimental thing and you're in their 20s and i mentioned tongues untied and they they had never heard of it or maybe they had seen excerpts of it but they've never seen the whole thing i'm Mm -hmm. like oh my god you have to watch this (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i mean i feel like it's, it's part of this canon and you know he is still you know even though he's like no longer with us he is still teaching us and inspiring right. us and and also just teaching self-love you know it was, right. it was a love letter to to black gay gay men but you know we could all like take from that and just uh, and learn how to be unapologetically ourselves you know um because he was he was like making that film at the time was revolutionary because I, I remember the congressional hearings like because. um I think there's a senator out of, of North, Jesse Helms, I think it was. And it was Helms.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. Jesse Helms.
0: And because it was like, Marlon Riggs was all, he was always talking about him. And then Mapplethorpe and
1: mm-hmm. a few other
0: artists, like, you know, and they were attacking the <laughs> NEA and an NEH, like they are now, you know, but they were like really targeted. And I remember being, reading articles about a Newsweek and Time. And, and also, I mean, I think it's incredibly revolutionary in way for PBS to put something like that
1: on. Absolutely. Absolutely, but
0: just the level of intimacy between like black men loving each other, like that, that it it showed. I mean, just all the layers to
1: it, and all of his work. I mean, I think about, I, I think about you know what ethnic notions taught me not just around media literacy, but what ethnic notions taught me around my own history. I mean, that was a that was like a whole you know university course in ninety minutes. I mean, he was just. It changed everything. (laughs) I mean, his work just, you know, color adjustment, like all of it. I just felt like he was an artist. He was our professor. He was our, you know, brother. Like, he just, um, you know, I, I think I just, like I said, I think I just felt really seen by him. I felt like he was talking to me. He was also talking outside of his community. Like, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to do that. And he was really gifted um, in that way, and I, I think I also just learned that that um, I, I mean his films were the first documentaries that I really fell in love with, and um, and that re- I really ever paid attention to, and I think something about that made me think all films should should come from within co- communities and speak to their own communities, and all films coming from that perspective should make you feel seen and loved. And I went from having those early experiences as an undergrad coming into, you know, six, you know, four, four years later, um, or six years later coming to documentary through this impact work or outreach work. And then I was experiencing really different kinds of documentaries. And I remember just thinking this work is really important. These films are important. The issues are important but I don't feel like I felt with Marlon's work. I don't feel like I'm being talked to. I don't Mm -hmm. feel like this person thinks I'm their audience. I don't feel like, uh, I feel like, I feel the filmmaker's curiosity. I don't always feel the intimacy. Um, And I, you know, as much as I, you know, his work was my entry point into this, into documentary. Um, I think I spent a lot of years in those early years working with documentary, searching for that feeling again. And I, to be honest, I didn't really feel that until I really found like a a intellectual home of firelight because Mm -hmm. I think the ethos of firelight was much more about cultivating filmmakers who were coming from that same mentality of speaking to within. I mean, certainly telling whatever story they want to tell, but many of the stories coming out of the Firelight, um, especially the documentary lab, were either trying to do that work of educating our own communities or speaking to our own communities. And um, it, you know, it took me a while to get to that place where I felt like I was back home in documentary, um, but I was glad I found it.
0: Yeah. So talk about Firelight and also about This concept, quote unquote, hashtag decolonizing docs. There has been a lot of talk about that in regards to decolonizing documentary from this perspective: of the industry, the audience, and the filmmaker. Like how we see ourselves, you know, are we being the authority in our story, you know, um, because we have these this lived experience? Um, So, how did your work with Firelight tackle? that and what were some of the things that came up with um like the documentary fellows and also maybe the impact fellows where you had to try to dismantle some uh, of this internalized really oppression that we all are have to deal with because we're born or raised in this this society i know it's a big question (laughs) that is a big question tony
1: (laughs) You asked all the questions, you know, I mean, I think, you know, this move to, you know, decolonize documentary, you know, I think if you pull back the lens a little bit, I mean, first, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I've used that term and I've organized conversations around that term and, and, and been part of conversations with that term. And I know that that terminology alone is pr- problematic, the decolonial experiment, the decolonial uh, objective um, didn't you know comes from somewhere it has a context that context is around land it's around sovereignty um so i you know i'm cautious to use a framework that was is really you know comes from a context of physical sovereignty and and, and land uh, and appropriation and i don't i don't want to i don't want to misuse that term decolonial um and also it's also in in opposition to it you know and i think part of what is frustrating is that we are constantly defining ourselves in opposition to either a white supremacist Um, or colonial framework or mentality, um, a capitalist system where, you know, our identities are more than what we are opposing or what we are oppressed by or feeling constrained within. So it's not a great term to describe or define this movement that's happening, this culture shift that's afoot, um, because it's it's assuming that it's all just in, in opposition to something negative, as opposed to coming from a place that's very forward thinking and progressive.
0: Ranelle and I were, um, we were at the Big Sky Documentary and Film Festival and um, we were, we had a meeting with some um, indigenous filmmakers. Well, I think I asked a question about de- decolonizing and one of them brought up the fact that maybe we should focus on indigenizing spaces. And um, I thought that was like such, like that was such a mind shift for me mm. because, you know, because, it decenters whiteness and right. it decenters colonialism. Like, oh, okay, I like that a little better. And right. that feels like less pressure right. in a way. Right. Yeah.
1: So we're still grappling, you know, I, I give, I mm-hmm. extend grace to all of us. We're still grappling at the right words, you know, the right lexicon to kind of define what we're. Um, what we're trying to build. But I would say that, you know, this, you know, to me, you know, when I see the shift that's happening with documentary film, and if we use that decolonized frame, whatever language we're using to frame this work, I mean, I see it as a response to um, the fact that we're we're working around a form that has its roots in colonial extraction, it has its roots in white supremacy, it has its roots in observing uh, individuals who were not seen as Human in the same way as the person behind the camera, and who were meant to be examined, and whose experience was meant to be interpreted. Who who was not seen as the audience or the beneficiaries of that work, and that's the colonial. That is that is the that is where this form comes from. That's where this form was birthed. You know, it's very difficult to excavate um, the norms that were. Built into this form, um, uh, from this form, it's this form that's so beautiful, you know. Um, right. But but mm-hmm. but the fact is that that the norms that are baked into this form. And, and also the norms that are baked into the field really come from this place that's uh, racist and a form and an arm of, of imperialism. And so there's that piece, you know, and then there's the other piece, which is that, you know, the field that's grown uh, around this form has also shifted that this form has gone from being a form that was used. Um, to ed, you know, in educational settings, also in in uh, entertainment settings, but now has an infusion of capital, you know, as new entities um, are coming into the field, as as motifs that are being replicated and pulled from fiction are being replicated mm-hmm. in non-fiction, motifs about the noble savage, mo- motifs around, yes. um, mm-hmm. around crime and true fiction, the true, true crime, and all these motifs that work so mm-hmm. well as genres in the fiction space can be replicated if you find the right willing or unwilling protagonist in the non-fiction space. And it's generating revenue. And there are new players that have resources to resource this work. And it attracts new filmmakers who would like to t- tell these stories. Um, and so all of that means that we're in this moment right now where at, at the same time over the last 10 years and nearly 20 years, there's been an effort to diversify the makers um, of documentary, to diversify there have been pipeline programs that have really been doing great work to bring new folks of color um, into the work as as makers but these folks of color who are oftentimes coming from the same communities that are often documented um, are coming into an environment coming using a tool that was created out of cultural hegemony right um, and also coming into a, a, an environment that capital has shaped in such dramatic ways. Now this, this infusion of capital has shaped, you know, um, and so all of that means that there's this churning in the, in, you know, there's a churning in the field, and this churning in this um, really is a reckoning around what do we want this field to look like? What values do we want nonfiction? both the form and the field to be based on. And I think this decolonializing is around these values of ethics, these values of accountability, Mm -hmm. these values of equity are not baked into the form and they're not baked into the field. And when they're not baked into either, um, this field and the form can be highly exploitive, extractive. It could do more damage even when it's made, the work is made by benevolent people, benevolent actors Uh, by benevolent curators, by benevolent okay. distributors, by benevolent funders. The the fact is that we're replicating forms that were not mm-hmm. s- coming from the communities that um, would be best served by the work. So this reckoning that we're in is a real, it's around you know, decolonializing this form and the field, but it's really around excavating. The fact that there's something rotten at the core of this, it needs to kind of be named and excavated. And, and I think the indigenizing it is like, well, if we take that out, what what is there? Like, what do we want to hold on to? What do we want to define mm-hmm. this work by? And in the absence of what we don't like, what do we want? What do we want to keep? Right. Want, what do we want to build this field on? What do we want to build this work on? So I think those questions mm-hmm. that we that we posed at Firelight with ADOC um, and with Brown Girls Doc Mafia coming together at, at Getting Real in 2018 and organizing these series of conversations around, you know, decolonial decolonialize the, the filmmaker, the industry, the audience. Mm-hmm. Part of it was like, okay, how does how does this framework, how does this colonial mentality show up in our work? As makers, as how we see who we who which audiences we privilege, which audiences we don't, um, how does how to do, you know, how does the colonial framework impact us navigating this industry? And then the other piece is if all that wasn't there, or if we ignored all that, wh- what do we actually see? What do we want? what do we want this field to look like how do we want to make films who do we want to speak to how do we how do we just create something new and i think that to me is what's so exciting about all this decolonial work right now however we call it is is the naming the problem and being really clear but also moving to the next thing which is okay well what what, what do we want this field to be built on
0: and also i think being really specific about the the solutions because you mentioned the accountability piece and i know and the work that i do um when i'm reading through applications um um and proposals one thing i ask myself when i'm reading through it particularly if it's a a filmmaker who is not from the group that they are shooting is um do they have anybody from that group on that team and not only do they have anybody from the team but who has like actually some real power On that end team. Um, but also, I look at their impact strategy, even though for where I work, that's not required. But um, and just how things are written, um, because I've seen, you know, proposals by uh, about films about Native Americans and written by a non Native American person. And they'll say that th- there have been no documentaries made about Native Americans. And I'm thinking, uh, well, you know, Google is your friend. You know, you know, and or like this story has not been told. I'm like, mm, you know, some people are telling
1: it. For you, you know, it has not been told. To yeah, you,
0: you, yeah. I'm like, so, I, and I, I have to have like conversations with the filmmakers. I'm like, like who, like, and really making them to find okay. Who first of all, you probably shouldn't word it like this if you want to get funding. But then like, second, like who is your audience? You need to and they're like, everybody. I'm like, no, because people who are in these circumstances know about their circumstances. So you know, but making them actually define and and say, and there's and there, I think there's still this um this inherent belief of like what is of of what is considered normal. And like I kind of Bring uh, It makes me think about Daryl Gates, of all things. I make these weird connections. But, but you know, back in the day when this is pre-Rodney King, before we got it on the video, but, you know, there was police buildings of black and brown people. And, you know, they were doing the chokehold at yeah. the time. And, you know, and there's Daryl Gates is quoted many times saying, you know, black folks just didn't have like normal circulatory systems. Right. So they started calling like the black and white police cars, like black and normals. You know, Mm -hmm. and there's this sense that, you know, essentially in this world, the society we live in, particularly in the U.S., white is considered normal and you must cater to everything that's white. And that is not the case because and this is like some of the brilliant work I think Firelight does is like we can we are our own audiences, like within our communities and within communities of people of color. Is it important for filmmakers of color, and this may be kind of like a, a duh question, mm-hmm. <laughs> to um, really do do the work of trying to dismantle like what is normal, what, what is considered normal, like, like, try to break into that when it, in regards to audiences, but also in regards to funding as well, because, uh, you know, a lot of funders maintain these beliefs.
1: Well, I mean, I think just across the board, unless you're telling an, an autobiographical, you know, story, unless you're turning the camera, um you know, a 180 and, you, and you're telling your, you know, you're looking at You're examining your life, your family's life. If you turn that camera the opposite direction from you, every filmmaker of every background should ask themselves, why am I making this film? Like, honestly, why why am I telling this particular story? What is it about this story that moves me? Um, What is it about this story uh, that I I feel like I want to tell it? And why should I tell it? and i think um and and i think that you know some of that those initial questions are are baked into some production applications but i think the question of what are the biases that i bring to this story is is never a question that that is is asked of filmmakers but it's a question that um or what are the biases or assumptions about this story am i am i walking into and You know, we all come with those biases and assumptions, regardless of our background. But the fact that we are in a society where whiteness is normalized is the baseline, especially whether you're coming from journalism in particular, um, where everyone of color is named by and identified by their race. White people are not identified by their race. Just the, the fact that the standards that come from journalism, and a lot of doc makers do come from journalism, or they come from J schools, or they come from film programs that don't ask them to, if they're white in particular, to, to interrogate interrogate the the lens from which they see the world and the fact that the, their whiteness is normalized um, by this society, whether they agree with that or not, that is the world that we live in. If they aren't ever asked to interrogate that, then they just don't see it. And I understand how white folks don't see it because it's like the air we all breathe in um, but it but but folks of color see through that lens all the time because we are defined by our race we, we we have to define ourselves and our work by that way because that's often how the work gets funded. That is how we are seen when we walk in the door. That's how we're externally defined. And th- we have to conform to that sometimes just to position ourselves in this work in any field, but we have to. Um, white people are not asked to speak for their communities and they're not asked to interrogate how their whiteness influences how they see other communities who they want to tell stories about. And so because we never have that conversation in documentary, they don't that conversation isn't generally had in journalism and it's not had in fiction spaces and it's not had in documentary. I mean it's had but in bits and you know bits and you know spurts. It's not happening in a comprehensive way, in a way that every every application asks filmmakers to interrogate that before they go off and pick up a camera then then we have these things where people are like i had no idea the you know anyone has ever told this story i think i think people would love to hear about this person who survived these odds in the jungle of their lives or whatever you know and they are talking to their own people they've never surveyed they are not from that community and if there's not a process to ask them to hold them accountable to that so then, what happens is, if the story is juicy enough, or they can express their proposal with enough sensitivity, that film can get made, and then that film can get out there, and then now in this environment, that film can be shown in a film festival, and that filmmaker can get screamed on. <laughs> and is- like we don't want to. Get to good- there was this point there where we could have intervened. And maybe that filmmaker may not have made that film, or maybe that filmmaker would have asked themselves some hard questions before they did it if we had intervened earlier. I'm interested right now in this point of how do we intervene earlier? Earlier, right. Before people pick up the camera is to ask people, all people, like, what are the biases Mm. and assumptions you are making about this community um, that you need to look at before you pick up that camera? And are, mm-hmm. are you, and 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 if you are an outsider to the community, because I'm not, I'm never one to advocate that we should only be telling stories about our own communities. And I think Renee Tajima Pena is like a beautiful example of a filmmaker who does amazing work, amazing sensitive, you know, illuminating, um, creative, interesting work about communities outside of her own as well as her own. I mean, there's plenty of examples of people who can do that really well. But you have to be very honest about the lens that you're looking through. And most white folks, and in general filmmakers are not, but most white filmmakers are not interrogated early enough about the lens through which they're looking. And um, Mm -hmm. all other folks of color are navigating that lens in every point in their careers and documentary. We're navigating that lens. We're speaking to that lens. We're speaking through that lens. censoring ourselves because of that lens. That lens shapes everything about how folks of color in this industry operate and white folks don't feel that. They don't feel that until Mm -hmm. they release their films and it doesn't get received well. I mean, it's so
0: interesting that you brought up the being able to interrogate our own biases. Um, And again, this may seem unrelated because I I do these things, but... (laughs) Um, I was on a committee um, for the Drone Foundation, a Grant Review Committee, and in our first, the meeting, the main meeting we had together when we were essentially evaluating the grants together and trying to determine who, who would get what. Yeah, well, we didn't make that final determination, the board did, but rec- making our recommendations right. was after we introduced ourselves and kind of gave our little bios, we were asked to identify our own um, biases. Um, But also like positive and negative and that was a question that had never been asked but i thought it was such a brilliant question to be asked Mm -hmm. because we all bring them and but also like hearing like having me articulate mine but also hearing other people's places of, of where they were biased really gave me a, a lens into like how they were thinking. And I think it made a more fruitful and robust conversation and discussion and debate as we were Absolutely. trying to decide, uh, you know, amongst these like many great arts organizations. So. I love that. That's such a good model. It was, uh, they asked a lot, a lot of us, but it was so comprehensive and I think one of the most um one of the most like satisfying experience I've ever had, like as being part of a review committee. And I think we all, at the end we came to like this wonderful consensus, but just being able, I mean, really it's self-reflection, right? Being able to look at yourself and be honest about yourself, like where you are, and where where your lim- and where your limitations are?
1: Right. Mm-hmm. I think you know that's just like a baseline question that I think filmmakers all filmmakers can ask because I think like you said you know the, you know your biases and preconceptions can be around race and ethnicity. They could be around class. They, you know they show up within communities of color. Um, you know. Uh, class shows up uh, you know heteronormativity shows up all your stuff show generational stuff shows up so I mean you know I think it's just you know again I don't I don't think these should be censoring questions but these should be just an the internal checklist that happens as you tell a story about a community that, that is or isn't your own and I think the cl- the clearer you are about the lens with which you are operating and you're looking out from the 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 more honest that work is because then i know that you know who you are and 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 you know who you are in relationship to the people who you're documenting you're honest about that and maybe those questions will Encourage you to not make that film, or maybe those questions will encourage you to make a better film, or to make a film that is actually in collaboration with that community instead of about that community for a different audience. It, you know, it's going to shift something because it's coming from a more honest and self-aware place. And I think our field doesn't necessarily reward honesty and self-awareness; it rewards entertainment. Um, it rewards, you know, what who can make a satisfying emotional experience. Um, and that satisfying emotional experience to one audience can be uh you know offensive and extractive to another so i i think because that because we're not valuing self-assessment that self-assessment piece and i think you can build in beyond that you can build in other checks and balances to ensure then that you know, if you do move forward with your film, that you're still holding yourself accountable in some ways. So these questions like you're looking at when you're looking at grant proposals is, you know, is someone on your crew in a position of power from that community? There there are ways to hold, if you don't come from that community, you've done your checks and, you know, you've done your self-assessment, you're like, I still want to make this film because it still fascinates me or this, I still want to make this film because I think it's an incredible story that moves me personally. Okay, you know, more power to you. Hold yourself accountable in a real, Way though, make sure you're building, you're communicating with that community or that protagonist. You're not simply talking about them or interpreting their experience for your own benefit or for your career's benefit. You can do that by having people who are uh, on an equal level to you as close as possible, who can check you, one who can bounce ideas off of you, who can shift the lens in a different way. And so I think, again, there's so many pieces of even how we can change our applications uh, for funding, um, for impact campaigns that kind of ask people to go through those checks. Sonia encourages
0: all of us to take a more holistic approach to documentary filmmaking that recognizes the need for reciprocity between filmmakers, protagonists, and audiences. Stories are not just for consumption and communities are not just objects of curiosity. They are made up of living, breathing people who have the right to agency in regards to the ways in which they are depicted on screen. Sonya asks filmmakers to consider the question, am I the right one to tell the story? To add to that, ask yourselves this. Do the communities you're filming feel seen? Are they actively engaged in the process? Does your project foster connection within these communities? And will they feel love when they see themselves on screen? And be honest and act accordingly based on what those truthful answers are. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at what'supwdocs.com. That's what's up wdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories. The What's Up W Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumas and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.